Hello and welcome back to Contractor Evolution. Today's conversation is with Kim Larson. Kim is truly one of our highest performing business owners within the Breakthrough Academy program. She owns all elements. So Kim is an award-winning luxury high-performance home builder in Kelowna, BC. Um, you know, some people have grit, some people have talent, and Kim is one of those rare individuals who has a ton of both. And she also has a story that I think a lot of you need to here. While she enjoys success today, right? She's won many awards, including best design build firm in BC. Um, her client wait list is booked out a couple years in advance. She has a massive portfolio of income generating real estate. It actually was not that long ago that she had to decide between feeding herself or putting gas in her car. And that's what I think I love most about her story of perseverance, how close she came to not being the success she is today. And I, I think that's the case for a lot of people at the top of their game, right? Big risk equals big reward. So in today's episode, Kim tells us how she scaled her business from a million dollars a year to a million dollars a month. Um, she talks about how people doubting her only adds fuel to her fire. And she shares her advice for other up and comer contractors with really big dreams like she had. So I ho really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And um, without further ado, let's get into it with Kim Larson. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Okay, Kim, thank you so much for doing this. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Awesome. I'm excited. So this, um, this story is an amazing one. And I know that your passion for architecture, for design, for construction, like it runs deep. So take us back to the beginning of this story. Uh, when did all this begin for you? It started a really long time ago. I was um, about six years old from what I understand that uh, I used to kind of sit in the neighborhood in my hometown and draw houses in the driveways and just run around the neighborhood and sit in people's driveways and draw the houses. Like with the, like the kids chalk? Yeah, no, with, I actually had pen and paper, pencil and paper. And uh, I don't know why, I just really enjoyed that from an early age. And then, um, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember when you get, you used to get like the TV guide or TV listings yeah, paper totally. that came in. And it would come in once a week, and there was always a home of the week in there, like oh, a floor really? plan and elevation on there. And I would collect those, and I was just obsessed with houses super early. So that was how it kind of kept starting. And then there was no internet back then. There was no Googling house plans and stuff. You had to go to the grocery store, to the bookstore, and actually buy a house plan book. Totally. And so I just started collecting those and looking at them. And then I just found it really interesting. I'd always look at how or think about how people would live in those homes as you're looking through floor plans. And then I just started to draw my own. I thought, uh, well, I'd like to draw what I would want to live in. And so about 10 or 11 years old, I started drawing my own floor plans just for fun. 
So, but like when you were a kid, you were drawing houses that you'd see, and then mm. that evolved into you like creatively yes. drawing your own spaces. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. And I don't know what possessed me to do it, but it was just something I was interested in, and it was a hobby of mine. I didn't know it had a name. Didn't know this was something called architecture. Um, you just liked it. I just liked it. I loved it. So um, that kind of evolved as I got into school and in um, like my early teen years, I talked to a counselor at school and we started to work on like um, uh, work experience programs. Totally. And so at 14, I started working for a architectural home design firm in Kelowna called Okanagan Home Crafters and they were um, an award-winning custom home design firm and they built a or they did some homes up in a in an area in Quail Ridge called the Street of Dreams and yep. so like it was these houses were open houses and I went through them and and fell in love with it even more when you see like the plans that they came up with and then the house actually built so that's kind of where it started to get a little bit more involved so I started learning how to do drafting on computers and stuff at that age when I was doing these um, like fourteen work experiences that yeah. young. Yeah, so following, you're, you're following not even your passion. Yeah, mm-hmm. you haven't even graduated high school yet. You're like learning to CAD and yeah. draw stuff. Yeah, and that was like like AutoCAD one. <laughs> like it was like when it came like, out. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I'm aging myself here, but that was what happened. Um, yeah, and then it just kind of evolved from there, and I kept working in architecture firms throughout high school and. I did that and I figured that high school was a bit of a waste of time. I just wanted to get to college and become an architect and, and move on. But you have to do what you got to do to get there. High school is a bit of a waste of time. It, it was, was for me. Was for me so you, you got out of there as quickly as you could. And then where did you go for like post-secondary? Did you, did you go to school for this? Yeah, I went to California. So that was, again, something that I dreamed up when I was super young that I wanted to go to college in California which is pretty unfair to my parents, I guess, because it was pretty <laughs> expensive. But I had this this vision in mind, and when I put my mind to something, I just never give up on that, and my parents know that about me. So they were super supportive, and I got you know the usual jobs and worked as a teenager to save up money, and and I paid for my tuition down in the States, and my parents paid for my living expenses, if you want to call it. And it was a pretty expensive time to go but that's where I went to went to college and um, I uh, finished the program I ended up being an architectural technologist and I graduated that program uh, 18 months early hmm. because of my love and passion for this yeah I, I, I remember you you said you talked to the dean of the school and mm-hmm. said like hey this stuff's like I'm really loving this and I'm blazing through it but yeah. can you give me more yes yeah I did that in month one of being at college so I had finished all of the the um, assignments and stuff for the entire first semester in like the first three weeks yeah because I just loved it so much and so I asked for a little bit more work to do because there was nothing else for me to do yeah. in my classes and this school is full of girls Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was one other woman in the program, and she was only taking this course because she wanted to learn how to draw plans for a renovation in her own home. Huh, right. So I was the only one that was turning this into a career, and the only Canadian down in the States, too. Right. And wow. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience. One, one of two girls, and you, you finished it a year and a half early. Yeah. D- good experience. Did you learn a lot? Like, did, Was that like helpful in sort of mastering your craft for the long run? Yes, I think... Um, 
it kind of just honed my skills to be something that was hireable. Yeah. So it was something that I knew how to do. You can't really learn creativity. No. But you can learn how to execute it. How to express it. it. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Okay. So, so you, you finish early. Um, what next? Did you, did you head home after that? Like you, you've obviously finished your program, got a certificate or a degree or whatever. What's, yeah. what's next for you? Yeah, I was pretty homesick. I mean, I was in the States. I was far away from home. I could only come occasionally. It was expensive. And um, so I was offered jobs in California, but I turned them down and, and moved back to Canada. And uh, at the time, it wasn't a booming uh, market for architecture construction or anything at that time. So I had to move to Vancouver and I took the first job that I could get, which was uh, basically designing um, or doing CAD drawings for a furniture company to build out office buildings mm-hmm. and stuff. And really? So you're like drawing sofas and desks? I and had to draw like panels and workstations. Right. And stuff. So I was like, which is not your dream. It's not super exciting. No, yeah. but, um, but I had, to, I got my foot in the door and yeah. got some experience. Yeah. And so that when you get that, then you can go to the next place and kind of continue to work towards your dream. And I worked there and then I, um, also had a dream of going to Australia. So I started applying for jobs in Australia so that I could get some experience there as well and um, volunteered. I said that I would come there and get experience in designing houses and stuff without pay so that I could get that experience so that I can then continue my career and get a real job. So you're reaching out to firms in Australia being like, Hey, can I come work for you for free? I like, I'm educated, I'm skilled, but, uh, you can pay me nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How long did you do that? I only did work with these firms for about six months and then I traveled for, had to see Australia while you're there. Totally. Um, and then, uh, as I was having to come home, I applied for a job with my, with the best architect I've ever seen his work. And he was local in Penticton where I was from and Robert McKenzie architect. And I, um, so I applied when I was still in Australia and I called him and I sent him resumes and I called him and called him and called him. And he finally said, yeah, we have a position for you when you come back. This um, wasn't just like a job that you applied for. Like you knew this Robert McKenzie guy, mm-hmm. you harassed him endlessly until he hired you. Mm-hmm. Like this was, this was the dude. You're like, I want to work for you. I want to learn from you. That's exactly what I said to him. Really? Yeah. That's cool. So, you're the dude. <laughs> I don't know about you're the dude, but I want to work for you. I want to learn from you. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, so finally he made, he, he made space and you went and worked for he him. He did. And he's like, I can't afford to pay you much because he's a super small <laughs> firm. You're like, well, I've been working for free for a year, exactly. so that's like, already a huge pay so bump. 12 bucks an hour? Yes, please. Yeah. It's, and can you believe $12 an hour is what I was making as an architectural technologist? <laughs> yeah, that's shocking. So I worked there, and then I would drive to Vancouver, leave on Friday after work, drive to Vancouver, work the whole weekend at the old job that I had on contract where I was making better money. And then I would drive back on Sunday night and go to work on Monday morning back for Robert McKenzie. And what, like, take us through this, this Robert McKenzie experience. I'm assuming there was some mentorship. I'm assuming there was tons of great learning. Like what was, what were the, what were your years with him in that firm? Like priceless, I would say, cause he, um, because it was such a small firm, it was him and one other architectural technologist, Sean, who later on I've worked with on projects actually within the last year. Yeah. And, um, and me. So 
I was the junior, so I got to, well, I did a little bit of everything, which was nice. And being in a small firm, you, that's what you do. Like you Mm -hmm. do a little bit of everything. And Robert was super hands-on. He would come up with all the concepts and then it was up to me and Sean to actually draw it out and execute it because architects are very visual and they're very um, creative, but they can draw something on a napkin and then say, make this this. work. Yeah. So we have to take it then from that to being a reality. What kind of stuff were you guys working on? What kind of projects was that Um, firm doing? He was really good at doing wineries. So once he got one winery, he got a whole bunch of them. So over the years, there were like, I think, seven different wineries that we worked on, like income sellers in Asias, and to the point where we were working with the the band there to come up with this concept for this winery that was in on Aboriginal land. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, we got down to the details of doing pictographs and putting it on the signage and all these things. And so every single aspect of those buildings were thought out completely by our firm. And so that's where I think the detail for me and execution kind of came through. And then what I loved most about that firm was not only the drawing experience that I was getting, but it was the hands-on and in-field placement that I got so I was doing project management for the architecture firm and getting to go out to sites to not only draw what we were coming up with and creating for buildings and stuff but then Mm -hmm. to work with the contractor and with the trades and stuff to actually get executed was that it was that when you look back on this story what was that a big moment for you when you got to go on site the first time you got to see the the hustle and bustle the busyness of a site like see something come together what was what was that experience about for you That was the turning point for me, I would say, to falling in love with construction. Mm -hmm. So it was exactly like you said, like the hustle and bustle of it, the excitement of everybody that was on site. There was was people everywhere, and they were all a critical cog in the wheel for what needed to happen on that building and stuff. And to be able to work with a general contractor, and um, they would ask me questions. How do you want to see this here? We have an issue with this. This doesn't work. This works. Let's come up with solutions and stuff. And being a problem solver type of person, um, that was fun mm-hmm. for me. And being having that architectural background and stuff, like we can create anything. Yeah. So um, that camaraderie and stuff with people on site, I really enjoyed. It resonated with you. You, you wanted more of it. Yeah. Cool. And yeah. yeah, seeing those, seeing something that you draw on a page and, and seeing it come together, come to life and to be a building in the end was uh, there's a there's a result to your work. So cool. Totally. Um, Kim, how old were you at like towards the end of this experience at that Penticton architect that we're talking about? I think I was 23. Cool. Okay. So, so you're, you're, you're pretty young. You're pretty young woman kind of now getting getting interested in slowly moving towards this kind of actual construction space, mm-hmm. which is cool. Yeah. yeah. What, what, um, what was the next chapter in the story after this, after this Robert McKenzie experience, you're obviously, you're, you're way leveled up. You've, ha- you've got this new excitement for the actual construction process. Where do you go from here? Well, at that point I actually had to move to Kelowna. So it's further away. So, um, I was offered a position at a different architecture firm in Kelowna and I did that because I had just gotten married and my husband at the time was going to college up there. So I was putting him through school in uh, for the program that he wanted to take and, and I needed to be the breadwinner. So I moved to this 
local firm and stuff and somewhere that was going to be able to pay me a bit more to also continue to grow and to be able to support my my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got some good experience with them too, but it was more on the institutional um, universities, airports, larger yeah, not wineries. projects. Yeah. yeah, and it wasn't my favorite. I've always loved doing houses, but I also at that firm got to be the person who was doing the custom homes and stuff. So getting to draw those. I want to just illustrate a really cool point here. So, you know, a lot of people, especially in the Breakthrough Academy program, know Kim, know of Kim. So while such a successful entrepreneur, um, amazing custom home building firm. um, But it's Benji, what I find so neat here is that you know, Kim's been hustling since like the early teenage years. And here she is now in her mid twenties after working seven days a week, uh, finishing a university program in California years mm-hmm. early. And she's, she's working for like 12 bucks an hour to up level the experience to put in her dues that pay off later in dividends. I think for listeners, that's such an interesting point to think about it. Especially delayed gratification. The yeah. delayed yeah. gratification, especially in a world where people want so much success right, like right now. Yeah. She's year after year after year of hustle, 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 extreme hustle um, for financially very little payoff. And uh, and she's still going at it towards what she so deeply wants to get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. 100%. Thank you. So, so you're doing, um, you know, you're, you're drawing stuff, you're, you're doing projects. It's not as cool as it was before. Um, when did you, when did you leave this company? What was the next step for you in Kelowna? So this is another kind of turning point for me was, um, that love for that construction side was, um, just starting to really grow. I was kind of doing the project management for this custom homes that we were building and I met the builder and we were working super closely together on these few projects. And I really enjoyed that side again, just like I had at the last place. And, uh, the owner of that construction company, after working together with him for about a month on these projects and stuff, he headhunted me and asked me to come and work for them and being their uh, construction project manager for all their custom homes. They were a large builder who would build like a hundred homes a year, and they had a you know an area where they would build sort of more cookie cutter type stuff and in regular subdivisions. Mm. And then they had custom home section and they really needed someone to that understood that side of things. So the custom home side, the custom home side, because they, it's something that they were more used to doing production. So that's kind of where my expertise came from on that side. So I got to run that division at that point. And, um, that was a lot of, fun for me. I really, really, really started to love the construction side of things and worked for them for um, quite a few years. And then this is when things changed is um, the recession hit in 2009 and they had to scale back. Like being one of these larger builders, they you know, they have to have 50, 100 homes going in order yeah. to support their overhead. It's, it's tight. Yeah. 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 And um, I, my job was secure, but they were also asking everybody to take a 15% pay cut. Mm. And at this time I, my husband was still in school. I had just built a house for us, like a dream house for us to then move to and whatnot. And I couldn't afford to take the pay cut. Yeah. I, um, I was still supporting us financially and everything. And I just built this big house. And so that wasn't an option. Um, and kind of previous to that, I'd been working on a 
show home and met this framing company and this guy named Stefan. And Stefan was, um, we worked very, very closely together on this $2 million build. And he was just kind of the yin to my yang. We, we communicated super well. I could, um, we both had the same passion for homes and for high quality and everything else. So we just got along really well. And so this was about a year before the recession. And then him and I just kind of started hatching a plan for, we need to do this better. We need to do this different. Mm -hmm. Um, people can build homes, um, and have a good experience with it instead of that kind of negative connotation that the homeowners and builders hate each other in the end. Totally. That's something that's kind of known. Starts off all rosy. Mm -hmm. We're excited at the early stages. They yeah. start to sour by the end. Yeah. You know, you can barely talk to each other and exactly. it's, it's, yeah. So yeah. you, you guys, you guys were like, this does not have to be this way. Yeah. And, yeah. and I also want to say like you, you and Stefan, is it safe to say you knew fairly early on there was like a really good work chemistry there? Like he caught, you said yin to your yang, like yeah. he really caught, can you unpack that? Like what, you know, what do you have? What does he have? How does that stuff kind of work together? Well, it's pretty involved. Like I remember the first day that he walked in there, he walks in to our office. I hadn't met him yet. And he's just raging. He's like, I need this engineering information. Nobody's giving me anything. I need to build this house. I need some info. And I'm just like, okay, well settle down. I can get that for you. And I give it to him like this. And he's like, oh, okay. And so he's like hothead up here. I'm calm down here. So there's that. Yeah. Um, we're definitely, when we even work together still to this day, that's how we act towards everybody totally. for the most part. Good cop, bad cop. Love it. Kind of scenario. Uh-huh. And um, so we know who needs to handle a situation when it needs to be handled and stuff. And that we learned, I learned on that the second that I met him. Cool. And then we continued and he just had respect for me because I could get him the information that he needed. We need, I came up with the answers that we needed to come up with. And having that architectural background too, he's super creative. So we could bounce ideas off of each other and just come up with the coolest thoughts and coolest things and then execute them so did you guys know early on that like venturing out on your own starting a business that was sort of like that was destined to happen did you guys have those conversations you know shortly after meeting yeah I was always planning on doing that I had a vision from when I was a teenager that I was going to open my own business mm -hmm. and so that was the plan and when I met him it was just added that kind of last piece that I needed to um to do it. Mm -hmm. And just because I wanted to work with somebody who understood and had the same values that I did. Mm -hmm. And, um, so when I started the company immediately, I'm like, we need to do this together. Cause it's, I can't, I can, I can build a lot of things, but he has this element of, um, he physically is building the homes that we're doing and he's got that carpentry background and stuff. That's, um, important especially for the high level caliber homes that we're doing and so yeah it was it was pretty critical from the beginning so um the business you're working for says hey you know we need you to take a 15 percent haircut yeah. and you say take a hike yeah then what yeah so i had been planning this for about a year like i was saying so you're scheming I'm you're scheming. like plotting yeah. yeah so i had irons in the fire going there i knew that i would my like i said my job wasn't really at risk but and I wanted to do something better. I wanted to give a client a better experience and, and also offer design build. Yeah. Because nobody did that. That wasn't happening it at wasn't the time? It wasn't happening at all in the area. We were the first one to ever do that. 
Um, so, and that's something that we created or I did so that our clients could go to one place for all of the services instead yeah. of having to go to this triangle of different people to get what they want done. So I was scheming, like you said, and I had irons in the fire. I found a client or somebody sent him to me who had started construction on this beautiful house on the lake. And it was um, mostly framed, like foundation up and it was framing was happening. And he um, was needing help. He was trying to kind of manage it himself with this framing company that mm-hmm. he was working with and stuff. So uh, this recommendation towards me, he called me and I was going to become his construction project manager and run the rest of the project to the end. And this is going to be a three plus million dollar build. But it had already been started. It had been started by so the, somebody else. There's, he's basically saying, hey, come, come fin- yes. clean up this mess. Exactly. And this and is it your was first job. It was a huge mess. <laughs> yeah. Like I had to come in and try and figure it out and then try and put it back together and get it back on the rails and stuff and go. And so once I had that kind of in the bag, I gave notice to my job and I offered to stay on to kind of help with that transition time because it was I was kind of a big point in this in the in the project management side there yeah. and stuff so not to leave them hanging and um, my ex-boss he said no we don't need you and he also told me he's like and just so you know if you go out on your own you're gonna fall flat on your face Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so Super encouraging. I was like, thanks. But what people don't know about me and what he didn't know about me is that just adds fuel to my fire. And it just, I never give up no matter what I'm trying to do. So him saying that was just like, thanks, I'll prove you wrong. Added motivation. Yeah, huge motivation. And that wasn't the first time I got that either. I got that in, in high school from my drafting teacher. He told me, you need to find... A different career because there's no room for women in this business and he told me that in grade 11 and again I just like same experience same experience I'm like I'll prove you wrong totally so you, you love the haters it's fair to say I do yeah yeah always have yeah um how did this how did this sort of mess of a job go that you inherited he went AWOL so this homeowner this is your first project the guy goes the first AWOL project yes I leave my job so becoming which, an entrepreneur yes the dream's coming true <laughs> Yeah, the grit starts. Yeah, so he, um, I won't get into too much of the details, but he actually went, um, and you can't really say bad words, but he actually went AWOL and went a little bit nuts and um, ended up in the hospital for it and stuff like that. So this project just went. Totally sideways. Yeah, like he wasn't paying me and and he couldn't, like he was kind of incapacitated. He just, he was done. So did you get paid at all for this? I think I got five grand <laughs> for his project. Yeah. So entrepreneurial, which is like a multi-million begins. dollar, yeah. multi-million dollar build. Yeah, you're finishing it. My fee for <laughs> the first month was five grand, five grand, and it was supposed to be like that until the duration of the project. And five grand to me at the time was a huge amount of money. And um, yeah, so I didn't get that, and didn't get to finish the project. And then I'm like, oh my god, I have a business and a house to support, a partner. Um, yeah, and yeah, these employees that I had to kind of take care of and take and take care of their livelihood and stuff and then at the same time I'm going through a divorce so um it was a little bit that would that was pretty dark days for me but it also um when you're 
coming out of desperation, really, you can kind of achieve anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're kind of like recession, mm-hmm. entrepreneurial venture, go, first entrepreneurial venture going sideways, divorce, it's all coming down at the same time. All at the same After time. like a decade of just pushing, pushing, pushing and fighting through stuff for very little reward. Yes. Yeah. So I had to, I had to figure it out. So I um, just started working on, I started cold, cold calling people and starting to get design projects and um, eventually turned one of those design projects into a construction contract. And <laughs> I didn't have my new home warranty at the time. Like I wasn't just I wasn't a builder yet and I took so this is a $400,000 build which was it was a nice house but it was just a lot cheaper to build back then and so our fee for that would be for I think it was 40 grand yeah and so the deposit was 8,000 because percentage and talking about these numbers now is just like (laughs) they're so small um but yeah I took that 8,000 and I took the $2,000 I made from plans and I negotiated new home warranty down from a $20,000 bond to 10 grand. And I bought my new home warranty with the deposit that I did for the construction project. I wasn't even allowed to build yet. Yeah. And the plans that I got for it. And so you're back to no money. Yeah. Back to zero <laughs> I know math and this yeah. is not zero good. Yeah. <laughs> you're literally like robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're actually, and you're not even doing that. You're just like paying to have the right to build the project yes. that you've actually already been contracted to do. Yeah. So it's, like these first few years are seriously scrappy. They're very scrappy. They were, um, I remember like so this first project was in Naramata. I lived in Kelowna and I like I said I just built this house. So it's like an hour drive like it's an like hour and a kilometers, bit. like sixty miles. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. drive. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful drive. It is. <laughs> but it's yeah, it still takes gas even though it's pretty. And um <laughs> so we get to I would get to Naramata and and Stefan would have to put like a jerry can of gas in my car just so I could get home. And so I had to choose whether I was going to buy food that day or put gas in my car to get to our job site and stuff. Really? Cause there was $0 and zero cents starting this thing out. And, you know, going through a divorce didn't help either. Cause I was paying those living expenses as well and stuff. And so, yeah, it was a uh, trying times, but, um, and to start a construction company during a recession, if you can survive that, you can survive anything. So that was, those are the early, those are the early, years of all elements i guess yes um i know i know like just from knowing you over the years like i know that there was like a really big break for you there was like mm-hmm. there's an opportunity that came up that sort of now and now in hindsight was a bit of a career maker tell us about tell us about what happened there and what it's done for the business and you since so yeah that so that first house that we built in naramata it was house number one super thankful for it great clients and then we had, so Stefan had taken a framing job because we didn't have enough work to do anything yeah. really. So he was going back to framing and stuff until like I after figured. after you finished that first house. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. So homeowners move in, they're happy. Yeah. Yeah. Really and happy. And we actually. had nothing yeah. else. So that's it. That was it. So you're back to zero. Yes. <laughs> and then, so while I'm figuring it out, cause I'm the one who has to find all the projects and stuff. Um, he just got this framing project to do. And we had a architectural designer named Carl who, we had built, in my Rikon days, we had built a few of his designs. Like built This his is the houses. big company that you're at before. Yes. And um, so he, this designer, loved me and Stefan working together. So he had designed that show home that we were working on that we first met on. And so he basically sent 
his clients that he was doing this monstrous house to us because he said these are the only people mm. that can build this thing. So instead of sending them to Rikon or wherever mm-hmm. else, he sends them to you personally. Yes, because of our this house is a um, it's a structural art piece. Like it's mm-hmm. it's extremely complicated. It needs that real eye of detail in mm-hmm. order to execute it properly and stuff. And the some of the builders they just don't. Have it. Have it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he sent them to us and we met, um, I met these clients, Stefan met these clients and what Stefan could provide and what I could provide doing the, all the management of everything. And he was going to physically build the house. It was kind of this uh, venture between four people, the two clients and Stefan and I to bring this thing to life. And they... Um, but just believed in us because we believed in ourselves. And I remember the client saying, he's like, is there anything about this house that scares you? I said, no. And Stefan says, he's like, it's just wooden nails. Like <laughs> That's what he says? Yeah. But it's a yeah. lot more than that. And, and you were telling me a bit about these clients, which is, which is so interesting how life has a way of bringing the right things to you, even yeah. though you were dealt such a difficult hand between the recession mm-hmm. and the challenging entrepreneurial times and the divorce and everything. But suddenly... This, this client comes, you said they were a bit of an entrepreneur themselves, yeah. right? What, yeah. what, what does he say to you? So they, um, he basically said, so this project we decided to venture on was a, a love for let's create this, this cool thing. And because we were so new, um, he said, he said to us, he's like, I got my start too. So somebody helped me and gave me my start too. So we're going to do that for yeah. you. And because he believed in us so much. And um, it, I mean, we worked on that project for four years. And in my (laughs) early entrepreneur days, I wasn't very good at contracts and stuff. And I, my contract was to, for them to pay us. So we weren't doing it as like a builder management fee on this one. It was like a project management fee. So it was going to pay me five grand a month for 14 months. Because that's how long we expected the house to take to build. It took two and a half years, plus the year and a half of planning ahead yeah. of that and permits and prepping the site and all these things. So after the 14 months of construction was up and stuff, um, that was it. The well was the check dry. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So, you, yeah. so you, went into, you went into extra innings there, basically yeah. doing pro bono work for like well over a year to yeah. finish this thing. I worked for free for the next year just to finish this project. Now, so <laughs> <The> entrepreneurial <laughs> trials continue. Like, this is... And, and guys, just if, if you're listening to this and you're driving, just for some context, I think it is worth seeing what Kim is talking about. If you, if you pull over right now and, and go to her, her website, All Elements, is it .ca? .ca. Uh, and you check out this Houses of a Name. Yeah, it's called Sincera. Sincera, so. and you check it out. You'll get, you'll, get a, you'll get the drift of what we're talking about here. This is no yeah. ordinary house. And she's, yeah. she's driving to get this thing done, as promised, for over a year after mm-hmm. the checks run out. Yeah. But it it must have been like a there must have been like a risk versus reward calculation. You're doing mental math in your head. You're going okay. This is this 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 house is a statement. I I by the way see it almost every day when we're boating and stuff. I always go oh there's Kim's house. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. So you know that you're like this is a statement. I'm gonna have to do this for free. But when it's done, this could be this could be a career launcher. Yeah, it was so it was very much twofold. It was um, that I never give up. And so I will never quit. Right. So there's that. And that was just, that's me being pigheaded or whatever. 
but that is, I just don't give up. And I could have quit at that point, but then the motivation also was, like you said, this house was a, to put us on the map and it did. And we won, I don't even know how many awards for it, but awards like across British Columbia as the best house home of the year. Um, we, after that won like the best design build firm in British Columbia. And it just kind of, it skyrocketed us right. to, to kind of be able to get the clout of the projects that we were capable of building. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it was, it changed everything really. And just to highlight to my earlier point as well, uh, on grit, determination, delayed gratification, how old are you at this point towards the end of this build? Maybe 30. So you're 30. So you've been now hustling since your teens. So mm -hmm. it's like half your life. Yeah. You've been hustling it out to finally get to this point. Yes. I, I'm curious what happened after that. Like, did, did the phone start to ring? Like, were you guys, was the ball rolling downhill from that point on? Well, at that point, I had to. So that other house that we built in Naramata, House 1, because we got that one, then other people that were starting to think about building in that subdivision, beautiful area above the vineyards and stuff, they took note. We built the first house in there. And so we started having conversations with people down there. And during this build for Sincera, like we kind of agreed with the clients that this was going to be our only project at the time, that it would be our 100% focus so that it got mm -hmm. the attention that it needed. And, but after, <laughs> I got to bring an in income somehow. So we started taking on these projects, more projects down south. And I started talking to the owners of, of lots down there so that I could fill in the gaps of where the income was not coming from anymore. And so we started building other homes down there. Um, so that kind of where we got, we, we've now been building in Naramata. We've always had a house going on in that area for the last decade. And this other monster project in Kelowna kind of enabled us to work in this area too. And then to go after the clients that we always wanted, which yeah. were the, to do the big white elephants, the hardest things that you could possibly build. Yeah. That's what we love. Higher end, design heavy. Yeah. Um, complex big projects to tackle yeah the that's, that's the your better. jam yeah the harder the better <laughs> now so okay so uh, you know the, the the word is out all elements rocks a lot of people want you to build their homes um i, I know from your story like that this this you, know, you still weren't kind of through the, the worst of it yet there's still challenges ahead like what you know busyness mm -hmm. um demand can bring on a whole host of other problems so once once um yeah, you're, you're, you're getting called out to do cool projects. What roadblocks, what challenges, what kind of stuff did you encounter then? Um, a little bit of everything, I guess. That would be kind of when I realized that when we were getting all this demand from clients to do these projects is that I am only capable of doing so much myself is yeah. one of them. So the, the need to grow was important. I think the first time I tried to grow the business and stuff, I actually failed at it because I just didn't have the systems in place. I didn't have the knowledge about how to hire the right people and all those things. And um, I just kind of winged it and it didn't go well. Yeah. And so I scaled the company back down again to so that I can control everything and so that our guarantee of quality and everything was always going to be met and mm -hmm. it was hard for me to try and delegate that to other people and have it not go well so but yeah you you did figure it out and i remember when we were kind of like brainstorming this this last week um 
I, I might get some of these numbers and dates wrong, but I think are like around 2016, you're doing about a million bucks a year. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, really high end stuff, really cool houses, but this isn't like a big scaled out business yet. Whereas now present mm. day, it's a million bucks a month or somewhere around there. Yeah. So what did you actually do to go from, you know, you know, all elements V1 mm -hmm. mom and pop shop to the big brand scaled out business, very, very well run operations. Like how did you actually do that? Yeah. Well, it's definitely like you said, from the grit, from the very beginning, like year one, our revenue was $70,000, like seven zero and kind of slowly built it after that, got these projects and stuff. And we were kind of hovering around a million dollars a year for a few years. And that was because that was the the amount that I could produce. Yeah. And I am the bottleneck of the company because we do the design in-house. And so if I don't draw plans, I we don't have houses to build. And um, so that's kind of where I figured in 2016, if I don't make a change here, then this is kind of going to be where what we're at. Yeah. And we had so many people flocking to us to do their projects that we had to have a waiting list because I couldn't, we couldn't do them. Like we had other projects on the go. Mm -hmm. We couldn't take them on yet. And people waited. So, cause they wanted our houses so bad, but it just wasn't really, um, I just wanted to grow it bigger. I wanted to be able to do all the projects that we were being offered. And I bet like with your story, like barely just scraping by for so long, this wasted opportunity, these people who mm -hmm. want to give you a ton of money and you can't even get to it must've killed you. Oh yeah. It was devastating. Cause remember when we were talking about $2,000 and $8,000, like a million dollars was huge. And, yeah. but there were 10 houses behind them waiting. Totally. And, um, so that was kind of the year that I realized that I had to, let go and delegate a little bit so that we could grow. And this was the challenging part is that after we finished a couple houses, they were just kind of moving in and stuff. We didn't have another one to go to, mm -hmm. but we had about 20 houses to design. Mm. And those houses, um, they need to become construction projects for us to be, to produce revenue. Obviously totally. like in construction side of things is our biggest chunk of revenue. So, I was slowing things down because I couldn't get the designs out quick enough. So when we didn't actually have a house under construction, I hired, actually changed, actually changed one of the employees that I had who was like an accountant and was my assistant. And he was great. There was absolutely nothing wrong with the work that he did, but he didn't have the skills that I needed to grow. And so I had to let him go in order to hire a, drafts person who could also be my assistant, but then I could do both of those things mm -hmm. and she could take, I could still come up with all the concepts for the things and then she could draft it for me so that we can move forward and pump out these plans. Cause we had 20 houses to mm -hmm. draw and I own, there's only so many hours in the day. So that was kind of a important moment. Yeah. Like tough and risky decisions because you didn't necessarily have the revenue to back it up, but you're now supporting this person's livelihood, right? Exactly. And yeah. uh, it was a really tough decision to make to spend money before we made it. Right. Yeah, totally. This is something we hear so much from contractors, even super smart entrepreneurs. It's they're, they're very hesitant to pull the trigger and there's often, it is often done late and they will hire great people that create great ROI, right? Like because of this person, you're able to pump out these drawings and then, and then bring the construction revenue in. But, um, 
a lot of the time people are like, man, this was such a great decision. I wish I did it earlier. Yeah. Like people ask, like, do you, do you have a philosophy on this? People ask, should I go out and get a bunch of work and then get totally overwhelmed with my, with my pipeline and then go hire? Or should I just like go hire someone first and then go find the work? Like, do you, do you have a, do you fall on one side of those, uh, that, that question? Hire people first and find the work after because, um, there's no bigger motivator than when you've got, when you're forced to actually make a move and to find that work for that person, especially if you care that they're, that you're taking care of them, that you pay them their, that's their job is to work for you. And that's how they pay their bills and support their families and stuff. So it's something that's you need to take seriously, but having that risk there, it just forces you like, you got to come up with it somehow. You got to figure it out. Totally. And you do, and you do. That's, that's, that's sort of the entrepreneurial spirit. You will figure it out. But I, that's been my experience as well. Nothing gets your ass in gear more than like a few more mouths to feed within the organization. And that, making that key higher would made it easier to do the future ones for the same reason. Totally. What were some of the other so. roles you hired after this, like the, this designer, this person sort of help you do drawings that frees up some bandwidth. Who was next? So then I hired a controller mm-hmm. to do the financial side of things. Cause after I had let the guy go who was doing our accounting and being my assistant at the same time, previous to that, I did it all myself, but then I hired her. But the great thing about her was she, was a subcontractor. Mm-hmm. So she had her own business that was accounting for strictly for construction companies. So, mm. and she, at the time she worked for a few different builders and we probably spent or took up about 40% of her time. Mm-hmm. And, but it was a way for me to get the experience and the person that we needed to be able to, with these complex builds and stuff, understand the construction side of things, but not for a hundred thousand dollar salary because she's only a a subcontractor so um later on she started working more and more and more almost to the point of 100 percent. and we outgrew her business model and since then we've hired somebody full-time in-house but that was a great uh stepping stone for me to have that flexibility early on yes yeah what what else did you what were the other sort of like tactical practical things that you did to really expand your revenue well the delegation thing was a big thing for me was the realizing that I was only one person. I actually need to let other people do some of those roles. So here's a question I wanted to ask you, like, like you and all elements is fairly well known in the market for being extremely high quality and product. Like the, the quality is something that you can reach out and touch and feel and see. And that comes directly from you, but it also can't always be you. So I know this is something a lot of contractors, a lot of our BTA members really struggle with is like, how do you do both? Because mm-hmm. you, you cannot be the bottleneck for your business forever or else you'll always be sort of a small shop, but you don't want to get big and have these huge compromises. You've got quality control issues. You've got customers that aren't as happy. That also kills the brand for you. Like how did you learn to let other people do stuff, but also maintain that super high standard? Being a stickler, honestly, for me, um, it was really important to try and get people that aligned with values and stuff for one, because that's all I understood from when me and Stefan started working together, mm-hmm. that quality is everything. And that is what stands us apart from everyone else. And you had that roadmap, I guess, from your working relationship with him, mm-hmm. where you knew what it was like to be on the same page, right? Exactly. And he he's a hard ass about it too. And both of us are just find that quality is the most important part. So that's what we grew the brand based on. And people know that, like you said. So 
bringing other people into that was challenging. And I think I made the wrong hire a couple of times that um, I would get fought on it a lot. And there wasn't um, as much buy-in as there needed to be. Mm-hmm. And so a few times some things went sideways and stuff. And, and I ultimately pay for that. And our brand and our reputation does too. And I think for me, like I'm always been... Because I'm such a determined person, I've always led myself to where I need things to go. And so that would kind of be how I do that with our employees and stuff is I try to lead by example as much as possible. And I'm the type that's like, okay, we're going this way. And I have my reasons why, and I have a vision for what we're doing and stuff. And so they need to buy in, but they buy in because of my excitement, my passion for it. And um, know that there's a reason behind it and stuff, but I am, I will, um, be hard on people a hundred percent. Like, is that hard for you? Like a lot of people find these accountability conversations really painful. They avoid them. They delay them when you, when, you know, when you get on site and Mm -hmm. something is not to your standard. Oh, it's very visible on my face (laughs) first and then verbally next. And I definitely, um, I'm a bit hard on people that way, I have to say, like, because it's extremely important to us. And if we didn't have that, we really don't have the brand that we're about. Yeah. And we wouldn't get those projects that we that we get because of it. Um, so the, you know, leading by example and showing what it is that we expect and stuff is huge when they can just see that, which is why it's one of our core values. And But then making a point of pointing out when somebody is not doing it to our standards and explaining the reason why it's not necessarily up to that standards and why you need to mm-hmm. listen and follow it this way so they get it so that it hopefully doesn't happen again. Yeah, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, Benji, to your point, struggle with this. And um, I think what key thing to realize is uh, you've earned the right to do that, what she's talking yeah. about. Like as a gritty entrepreneur, you know and reflect on it right now what you've had to get through to get here. Like we talked about, you know, Kim's like a 15 year story for basically from like 15 years old to 30, hustling it out year after year after year to get to that point. And, um, and, and you've earned the right at, at, at that point to be able to hold the line and to stand up for what you believe in and scale the business in a way that, 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 that makes sense to you and hold that quality standard that makes sense to you. Cause it's your brand, it's your reputation and your history up to that point. Mm-hmm. I think there's nothing wrong with that. And yes, there's a line between <laughs> being an abusive boss yeah. um, and holding a quality standard. That's not really what I'm talking about. But but to hold the line is 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 certainly not a bad thing. And if you respect yourself and respect your story of what it took to get to that point, you will. Yeah. And the other thing that Kim said that I think listeners can really take home is um, what does make it easier is when you do explain that deeper why. Like mm-hmm. this is the standard and here is why we have it here is what risks happening if we don't follow this standard. And you put the infraction that they've made, which isn't mm-hmm. a criticism on them. It's just like this work is not up to par. And I'm going to explain to you how this connects to the bigger picture of the organization that you work within. That, that's practical advice. That that will soften the blow. And I think it makes, a, makes it a more approachable conversation for entrepreneurs that maybe struggle with this. Because the last thing you want to, you don't want to feel like a drill sergeant. You don't want to feel like a dictator. No. And you don't need to. You don't don't need to but but the the standard is the standard Mm. and and i have a lot of admiration and a lot of respect for entrepreneurs 
that hold that, especially in, you know, today's day and age, it seems like standards are softening and there's a lot of excuses why things can't be the way they are. It's really refreshing when someone's just like, no, like this is shit. Make it better. And and one caveat to it is like you have to have the right people, right? Because if you have the wrong people, it will feel like you're a drill sergeant. And if it feels that way, if you have to mention it twice, exactly, you mention it three times, you mention it five times. At that point, it's like, we're not having this conversation anymore. It's done. That's when I changed to, because I think I used to be more like that. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, explaining the why, then... Then the next time they go to make that mistake, they won't make it they remember. because they know. Oh yeah. yeah. Know, yeah. As long said, as they're the right yeah. people that yes. are wired that way. And there are some people that uh, you can explain it a hundred times. Mm-hmm. They won't move. Right. So I think that that's kind of a key caveat. And we were talking about this mm-hmm. earlier, right? Like you have to be working with the right people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what, where is all elements now? Like you've obviously figured a lot out. It's been a hell of a journey. Like where, where describe your business today. So, Yeah, I mean, to kind of explain how we got from A to B and all the steps in between, the early on that kind of $1 million a year and stuff, we were basically just design build. Those were the two things that we did. Mm -hmm. And um, beyond that, we've really expanded into different revenue streams and to build our connections and stuff to be able to expand what we can offer services for our clients and stuff. So since then, we, we still do design build, we do um, property management and concierge services for our clients. So they, majority of our people don't live locally. They live somewhere else and we're building their vacation mm-hmm. homes is about 70% of our people. Mm. Um, so offering that, and it just kind of, we just started doing it for people when they were coming to visit, then we'd go start up their home, get it ready for them, change over their pool, do whatever we need to do. And so we started to offer that as a service that they can buy as a mm-hmm. package kind of at the end. And um, some of them too, they want to have income from their homes when they're not using them. So we now rent them out for them when they're wow. not staying there. So that's something, and again, a value add for our clients and it's something that brings us in extra revenue and it helps them in their um, scenario. So they're, you know, covers property taxes or mortgages or whatever they have. So not only do you design and build the house, you set it up for their arrival, you take it down for when they leave. And then when they're gone, you manage the, like the rentals or the short term, the Airbnb, yeah. whatever. I'm sure there's arrangements and all for the different. maintenance. Yeah. yeah. So you've, you do hooked that. Up, you've hooked in like the construction and then some recurring revenue. That's yeah. like, it sounds like such an amazing little addition to the business. Well, it's such a full package for them because they, I mean, they already appreciate, this is what they come to us for is to be able to do that design build and keep it in-house in one place. Yeah. So that, why not afterwards it's a, stick it's, with the same company to take care of it for us? And um, it just it's, makes it simpler for them. The other thing that we kind of expanded into doing is we create like um, architectural controls for subdivisions with developers. So we started working with developers over the years that need help um, creating their architectural controls. So if you're building a subdivision, they usually have rules on what you can build mm-hmm. in there and styles that they want to do. So we create those um, packages, which can be like hundreds of pages long. Yeah, yeah. So the, the key is, and I think here's the important bit, is is you're, you're diversifying revenue, mm-hmm. but within your core competency. Yes, that's the key. Yes. And then there's additional, like, um, we now do land development and stuff as well, and then yeah. get into the real estate side of things too. But I think something to highlight here that Kim does in a way that I don't see very many entrepreneurs in trades and construction, uh, I, don't, I don't see this happen that often, is like you think you think laterally. So it's like you can have 
you know, whatever industry you're in, whether you're a builder like Kim or you're a landscaper, a painter, a roofer, whatever, like there is a certain ceiling that you can get to if you're just going to do like your your basic model. And that's and that's totally great. You can have an amazing life, an amazing lifestyle, an amazing business story to do that. But I think to achieve bigger numbers, like we're talking real levels of excellence, you do need to like think outside the box. And it's no longer just like, well, we'll build more houses. It's like, we're actually going to do different stuff still within the core competencies, but you are mm. truly thinking outside the box. And I'm sure, I'm sure you'll add more over the years. So I, well, I suspect you're not done, you know, tacking on verticals to all elements. All. And I think what was really important about that for us, especially during the times that were tougher was having more revenue streams helped when construction was slower, mm-hmm. you know, during a recession or during those times when we were just in between projects or we were waiting on permits and things, we had all of those other little income streams coming in to yeah. float us during those times. And that's honestly what kept us going during many times. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and just continuing to add on to that now. And it's, I mean, we, I've now added these other streams and, and really just started to streamline the business now and to get into the nitty gritty, not just about the massive growth anymore, but it's about how to build your business and make it like a well-oiled machine Yeah. now and making and taking those little things and making them perfect. If you remember Benji, it's one of the things we talked about here with Kevin Shaw uh, on the topic of M&A and mergers and acquisitions of like what makes a business strong and valuable is like you have to stick within your core competency and your genius zone. Mm-hmm. Like she's not starting a gutter cleaning company. Like she's within her world of like architecture, building, land development, um, and, and, and dealing with those homes that she builds. But there are diversified revenue streams that can take you through those like challenging times and difficult and, and difficulties as you go. It's, right? it's a bigger world than you probably initially think when you're starting out. You go, oh my God, there's more here. There's actually totally. way more business to be done within you know this world. You don't need to go start up like a gelato factory. Mm-hmm. There's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's close to home. It's very similar to the stuff yeah. you're already good at. Well, that's like the things then you can also, you start to see all those other possibilities too. And there is like, we can start a painting company. We can start a, a floor install company. We can do junk removal, whatever. Like there's so many other things that we can build little branches off of now that that's what we'll go next. In a future episode, I think one other really interesting thing about Kim that uh, we'll have to have her back for is the whole world of real estate investing and developing. It's uh, it's a very happy place for me. Yeah, give us, uh, <laughs> give, us, give us a one minute teaser. Well, I can tell you how, remember those days in 2009, actually no, 2012 by the time I actually officially got divorced and took them like we split the things and I paid them out and I had $122,000 to my name and then over making moves nonstop, um, buying, selling, holding properties and stuff and just grid and saving things. I turned that 122,000 into about $9 million worth of real estate. <laughs> We're gonna, a, you're gonna that's have a you, teaser for a future episode. That's right another there. episode that's right there. And and one of the things I'll mention just one more thing on the teaser. Uh, tell me really quick about the story with the with the en- with the envelopes oh, with yeah. money in them. So, in order, so in, during those very very poor times and stuff, I actually put myself on a cash budget and put, I think it was two hundred and fifty dollars in an envelope for every week. And I took that cash out of the bank every week and put it into a little envelope, something I learned in college my mom would make me do so that I could only spend a certain amount when I was there. And I did that to myself when I was like 30 um, in order to make sure I only spent the money that I had. And during that year of saving that, I saved almost, or just over a year, I saved $40,000 and bought my next property. 
totally just from envelopes gosh. are the secret yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, just <laughs> so cool about that point. Like here you are, like she's 30 years old. She's worked her ass off and she's building, you know, stunning houses and, and she's on her way to build this massive, massive real estate portfolio. But that's how it begins is yeah. to save that. I mean, what is kind of funny now is $40,000, but yeah. that's where it begins. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, that's why we wanted to have some. Kim on. Like, yeah. it's like, it's to show like you can start, you know, humble beginnings and get to an unbelievable place if you just hang in there. Totally. Um, so Kim, on that note, I have a question for you. Uh, if you were to talk to a young entrepreneur who's, who's working so hard, but is not yet seeing the rewards of their work, they're 25, they're 30 years old and they're pushing so hard. What would be some of your like couple key pieces of advice? And they can be more like mindset, big picture life or oriented or like specific business, like the way like business operational stuff, the way that you run the organization. I think, something that I did about four years ago that I wish I did earlier, I wish there was an opportunity to have done it earlier, was to join groups. Like there's, so this has been a very, very lonely Mm -hmm. journey for me. Yeah. And I've done all of this like on my own. There's no one really to bounce ideas off of. And there's, you know, the people in your everyday life and stuff don't get it. They just don't get it. So to it's really important to surround yourself with like-minded people and you are who you surround yourself with. So if you want to be better, if you want to be driven up to here, if you want to achieve something, then look at people that are ahead of you in that game and you can learn so much from them. And joining uh, BTA Breakthrough Academy in 2017, I was at that point where I started to build that for the, like the year before and um, then we were really, really starting to grow quickly. We went from 1 million to like two to six to 10, yeah. like over those three years. And so there was a lot of, am I doing this right? Not doubt in myself because I knew that the, what the journey that I had envisioned, but am I doing the right steps along the way? Um, am I making the right decisions and stuff? And there was just nobody for me to go to for that. So Joining BTA was a huge thing for me because it was a contractor-related um, group that, so it was all in the same space. Totally. And everybody kind of understands and are in similar businesses, similar situations, and and meeting the people there and the other companies that are there and the owners of them, um, I learned a lot from that. And then the how to actually do that streamlining, streamlining and create the systems and stuff so that when you do grow you don't fail because I did fail the first time was is super key. I think everybody should do that if they can and join um, any groups of things that you're interested in. And I think you can learn a lot from other people. But besides Um, just the learning, it's, it it is like you, you made the point, like uh, this is a lonely journey. We say this all the time. Leadership is lonely besides all the practical learning and the insight and the, Oh, you should do this, not that. Like besides those conversations, there's a feeling Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Of just like, oh my God, these are my people. Mm-hmm. I'm not actually insane. There are other people that know what this totally. feels like, the challenges. And I think there it's cathartic. It's healing in a way. And that in and of itself gives you a new a new fire, a new kind of form of motivation. And it's really, it's pretty wonderful like in, in Breakthrough Academy when you see somebody that's been here for six months and they start to soften and they go, mm-hmm. you know what? Like I don't need to have all the answers anymore. Like there's yeah. other people I can lean on and trust. Yeah. Kim, yeah. And one of the things you mentioned also uh, over those couple of years in Breakthrough Academy and, and through that huge revenue growth period, you implemented certain like 
processes and systems and stuff that you just mentioned, what kind of stuff was really pivotal in moving your production capacity, mm. especially at that quality level forward? What are, what are the pivotal things when you kind of rewind the tape on the last few years? What really moved the needle for you? Learning how to hire people properly was, mm. is the most important part, I think. Um, I hired some wrong people along the way. Big time. And Can I learned my learned my lesson. <laughs> and it was expensive. Super expensive. And it actually it hurt our brand. So that was um really important. And then like just something actual structural about it is SOPs. So when we were talking about that quality control thing, I have written down an SOP for everything so that we have a high caliber of standard. And that's yeah. all stuff that because I was doing this for so long on my own, um, before hiring people and stuff, it was all in my head about yeah. how to, how we expected things to be done. So getting it out on paper and to be able to create those things so that anyone can follow in behind afterwards yeah. was, um, that's a big deal. Amazing. Yeah. Words of wisdom. <sighs> I think that's as good a place as any to end it. Kim, I want to thank you so much for doing this with us. It was really fun, really inspirational to hear your story. And uh, we do really want to have you come back for another one soon. Thank you. I'd love to. We'll dive into real estate investing. Yes. From $250 envelopes to $9 million real estate portfolio. There you go. Perfect. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for coming on. Fascinating story. Such a cool story. So inspirational and some good practical tidbits. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Hey, if you enjoyed this show, hit that subscribe button. It's what allows us to produce more awesome content for you totally for free.